0: On August 10th, 1991, an American freelance writer was found dead in a bathtub in his room 517 of the Sheriffton Hotel in Martinsburg, West Virginia. The case he was working on got him killed. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Danny Casalaro.
1: what they told you now you do what they told you now you do what they told you now you do what they told you and 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 now you do what they told
0: you now do what they told you do guys I trust the father
1: Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. So uh, I know we've not talked about it. We may have given this old boy a shout-out, if we did, you get a double shout-out. But Mr. Jack Spears from Across the Pond joined us on the Patreon Brews crew along with Leah Filberto. What happened I said Mr. Jack Spears and Miss Leah Filberto are our new Patreons.
0: Nice. Appreciate that.
1: Appreciate every penny. Amen, especially in this time. We know what it takes to stay afloat, and you are helping us stay afloat. Well, Coach, uh, here you got a little trip planned. Going to uh, eat some barbecue.
0: I'm heading up to Memphis tomorrow morning. I'm going to see the Beale Street Music Festival. I'm going to go to the barbecue festival. I'm also going to make a little trip to uh, to West Memphis.
1: What? You gonna go get your truck washed the at the Blue side. Beacon?
0: I'm gonna go try to see the site. I heard it's just right across the like first exit.
1: It is. We I've driven by there twice, and the Blue Beacon. You have to get on a, a access road, but yeah, the Blue Beacon's right there as soon as you cross the the mighty Mississippi. Huh. Good luck with that. Don't go at night. nights. So I'll tell to you. It's, it's a little sketchy I'm, at night.
0: I've lost you. I can hear you, but I can't see you anymore.
1: Oh good lord! Wouldn't be the same if you couldn't see this sexy face.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, be a
1: Be a damn shame. <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's...
0: well, how's the how's the cigar store idiots in the section seven oh whatever section seven o six?
1: He's getting a little bit of traction. Uh, he is chomping at the bit tonight with the NFL draft, so he's doing well uh, section or the cigar story idiots. They, uh, Rob's got a new job, so they've, uh, they're shuffling times to record, but he's got some in the tank that he's releasing. But other than that, man, everything's going well.
0: Well, I hope that they find success and we'll build our podcasting empire.
1: That's right. That's right. If y'all have not figured it out, we're part of, we've kind of stuck our heads together with, Rob at Cigar Story Edits and Shep at uh Section 706. We're all kind of doing a horde media. We've got some other things in the in the works, so hopefully whatever we have out there will tickle your fancy.
0: We'll I'll be the next Conrad Thompson.
1: <laughs> That's what I hope. You know who that is? Yes, sir. Old let's, school wrestling. Let's do this, it's man. This... podcast. Yeah, yeah. And then somebody was telling me today there was a guy was it somebody's getting like a million downloads a month jesus could you imagine sickler
0: advertisements if he's doing a million downloads
1: good god could you imagine the pressure i couldn't (laughs) all right man we uh we kind of kicked the can down the road because this kind of turned into a uh entity on its own we gave y'all chuck morgan and said that we were going to keep Kind of going about that little story, and our next one on the radio radar was Danny Casalaro. And uh,
0: no, we've never done an episode where I'm was genuine. I'm genuinely concerned about our safety.
1: Well, I, I thought about that because you told me to not get us killed when I text you this week. The guy that finished his book, Danny's book, has not been suicided, so I think we're okay.
0: We're just two dumb asses from Georgia, so please don't.
1: Yeah, don't suicide us. Don't, uh,
0: don't unalive us.
1: <laughs> That's right. So, Danny Casolaro was born on June sixteenth, 1947. He was the son of an obstetrician and the second of six children. Now, one of his siblings died shortly after birth, and his younger sister, Lisa, had passed away from a drug overdose in San Francisco's Hot Ashbury in 1971. Danny grew up Catholic and attended Providence College until 1968. He married Terrell Pace, a former West Virginia. I'm sorry, a a former West Virginia. A former Miss Virginia. And the couple had a son, Trey. Now, after 10 years of marriage, they would divorce, and Danny would receive legal custody of his son, which in 1981, that's pretty much unheard of.
0: That means that she must have done something bad.
1: Something real bad. She did it. Now, Danny was an amateur boxer. He loved writing poems and short stories. He also raised purebred Arabian horses. So he was quite the Renaissance man. And he got into journalism when he started looking into the Soviet naval presence in Cuba and the Castro Intelligence Network, along with the opium smuggling by the Chinese Communist government. But near the end of the 1970s, Danny kind of lost interest in journalism and began doing some computer industry trade newsletters and actually started a company. And he began selling his own publications in 1988, 1989. Uh, In early 1990. He decided to rekindle his journalism career and sold his publication company a little bit too soon, but he still made a pretty penny on it. But when he re-kicked in the journalism, he found himself enthralled in the Innslaw Law case through his IT contacts. Now, if you don't know what the Innslaw Law case is, we could do three podcasts on it and still confuse the crap out of you.
0: But... <laughs> I I have no idea what it is, and I've read about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and the the thing is, this thing rocks on for 30 years. Like, I want to say 2010, 2008, 2008, 2010 is when they finally put all of it to bed. I mean, this goes on forever. So, we're going to give you the high points, and it's going to be confusing, and I promise you, you need a map, you need a pen, a dry erase board, something. You're going to have to write down some names, draw some... Take some string with some pins. You got to keep up because it's going to get a little crowded. But basically, INS Law began as a nonprofit organization called the Institute for Law and Social Research. And the institute was founded in 1973 by William A. Hamilton to develop case management software for law enforcement office automation. And if you'll think back to some of our previous episodes in the late 70s, early 80s, you know that Police were not communicating with other jurisdictions, and county police or state police wouldn't talk to each other, and then that in turn wouldn't talk to, say, the FBI. So there was just no communication, and Hamilton saw a need to kind of streamline that, and he started Inslaw. So it was mainly funded through grants and contracts, and the institute developed a program called Promise, which stands for Prosecutor's Management Information System. Its purpose was for use in law enforcement record-keeping and case-monitoring activities. The Law Enforcement Assistance Administration was a key contract in funding of promise, and in 1980, Congress voted to abolish that administration. So with that being the main income for Inns Law, Mr. Hamilton decided to continue operating, but he had to switch from a nonprofit to a for-profit corporation and market the promise software to his current users as well as new users. So in January of 1981, Mr. Hamilton established the for-profit Inslaw, transferring the Institute's assets over to the new corporation. Now Inslaw modified promise to run on computers as well as mainframe servers. And the primary users were the U.S. Attorney's Office of the District of Columbia, and many state and local law enforcement agencies. Now, since it was originally developed as a nonprofit, both Inslaw and the Department of Justice agreed after lengthy litigation that the early versions of Promise were in the public domain, meaning that neither Inslaw or its successor had exclusive rights to the program. So in 1979, the Department of Justice contracted with Inslaw to do a pilot project that installed versions of Promise in four U.S. attorney's offices using two computer versions and the other to a word processor version, which the Institute was developing. Now, encouraged by the results, the Department of Justice decided in 1981 to go ahead with a full implementation of locally-based promise systems and issued a request for proposal, or an RFP, to install the computer version of Promise in the 20 largest United States attorney's offices. This contract usually called the implementation contract in later litigation also included developing and installing word processor version of Promise at 74 smaller offices. Now that's a lot of numbers and jargon, but basically what we're looking at in March of 1982 the Department of Justice is awarded a three-year, $10 million contract by the Executive Office of the United States Attorneys. So, I mean, they got a big payday. Huge payday. Now, all that needed to be said so that you can understand the beef between Ins Law and the Department of Justice is this. Basically, the DOJ stated that they were not getting what they paid for in a timely manner and began withholding payment. This forced Innslaw into bankruptcy. After Innslaw filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in February of 1985, there were still disputes over implementation contract payments, and as a result, the Department of Justice was listed as one of Innslaw's creditors. At the same time, the Department of Justice continued its office automation program, and in place of the originally planned word processor versions of Promise, the DOJ installed the version ported to prime computers in at least 23 more offices that were not in the original contract. So when Inslaw learns of this, they notify the Executive Office of U.S. Attorneys that this was a violation of Modification 12 and filed a claim in court for $2.9 million, which Inslaw said was the license fees for the software DOJ self-installed. Now, Enslaw would also go on to file claims for services performed during the contract for a total of 4.1 million. The DOJ contracting officer, Peter Videnekis, denied all of these claims. So this huge pissing match with the government and this little bitty company ensues.
0: I have no idea what's going on.
1: <laughs> Basically, I know this is That's what's so crazy is I had to read this like you did like four or five times but basically Enslaw's thinking hey man we just got this huge government contract well the department of justice is like yeah come on in and as soon as you install it we're going to steal it and they did and then started withholding Everybody payments would never do I know I know I, I, I trash such upstanding entities
0: they would never do something like that I don't believe this case at all <laughs>
1: Now, Inslaw's new allegations describe the Justice Department dispute with Inslaw as part of a broad conspiracy to drive Inslaw into bankruptcy so that Earl Bryan, the founder of a venture capital firm called Biotech, which later became Info Technology, could acquire Inslaw's assets, including the promised software. Innslaw's owner, William Hamilton, told investigators that Brian had first attempted to acquire Inslaw through a computer service corporation he controlled called Hadron. Hamilton said that he rejected an offer from Hadron to acquire Innslaw and that Brian then attempted to drive Innslaw into bankruptcy through his influence with Attorney General Edwin Meese. Now, both Meese and Brian had served in the cabinet of Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California, and Meese's wife had later bought stock in Brian's company so that Meese was willing to do this. Now, this is all according to Hamilton. Allegedly. The contract dispute with the Department of Justice was contrived by Brian and Meese with the help of the Associate Attorney General Jensen and Promise Project Manager Brewer. Hamilton also... Allegedly stated that a DOJ automation program called Project Eagle was part of a scheme to benefit Brian after he acquired Promise and that an AT&T subsidiary, AT&T Information Systems, had engaged with the Department of Justice in a conspiracy to interfere with Inslaw's efforts to reorganize during their Chapter 11 filing. He also told investigators that the Department of Justice had undermined the bankruptcy court's Judge Basin's reappointment and had attempted to undermine Enslaw's lead counsel in the bankruptcy suit. Cliff Notes, basically, Hamilton says, not only are you withholding payment and forcing us into bankruptcy, but you're doing that so that your buddy can buy my company, which he had tried earlier, and I told him to go take a hike. And the guy that tried to buy the company's in bed with the attorney general. And then, they're having an affair? yeah, they're having, they're doing the horizontal hooky pookie. <laughs> now, there's a whole conspiracy theory on basically Judge Basin, Basin's reappointment in bankruptcy court. And good God, I'm so confused when I tried to read that one. That's the backstory. So basically, the Senate has to get involved and they start investigating. They state that they find no proof of any of the claims that Mr. Hamilton is alleging. Their report noted that the bankruptcy court ruling had not concluded that Jensen had engaged in a conspiracy against innslaw and that their own investigation had also found no proof that Jensen and Attorney General Meese had conspired to ruin innslaw or steal its product— or that Brian or that company named Hadron were involved in a conspiracy to undermine a company and acquire its assets. You know, when the government investigates itself, I can't believe they didn't find any wrongdoing. Now, the report did re-examine the bankruptcy finding that the Department of Justice had pressured the United States trustee to recommend converting Inslaw's bankruptcy from Chapter 11, which is reorganization, to full-fledged Chapter 7, and found that the director of whatever E-O-U-S-T stands for had improperly tried to get special handling for Inslaw's bankruptcy. He did this, the report stated, in order to gain support from the DOJ. The report concluded that the subcommittee also found no proof for a broad conspiracy against Inslaw within the DOJ or a conspiracy between DOJ officials and outside parties to force Inslaw into bankruptcy for personal benefit. However, they did get a slap on the wrist stating that the Department of Justice shouldn't have hired former Inslaw employee Brewer to oversee Enslaw's contract and for failing to follow standard procedures in handling Enslaw's complaints. It also criticized the DOJ for a lack of cooperation with the subcommittee, which delayed the investigation and undercut the subcommittee's ability to interview department employees. So again, There's a lot of moving and hiding and sleight of hand. And so when the Senate tries to investigate, the Department of Justice just flat out tells them, no, you're not interviewing these people. But again, you know, when the government investigates itself, it usually doesn't find a whole lot of wrongdoing. Just saying. So now we get to the House report. So it goes. (laughs) Yeah, it goes to the House and the House Judiciary Committee began in. Another investigation into this dispute, this is why this rocks on for 30 years, and we're up to 1992. And in September, the report was released, and innslaw's bankruptcy suit had been first upheld in the D.C. Circuit Court, then vacated by a D.C. Appeals Court. The House report thus took a different approach to several of the legal issues that the Senate report had discussed. But, like the Senate report, much of the House report dealt with new evidence and new allegations from Inslaw. You may ask yourself, Self, what are these new allegations? Well, let me tell you.
0: <laughs> Bro, I'm so freaking lost, man. Uh, I've listened to this episode like three times.
1: I know you're going to. So, the new allegations is this the company Inslaw said that they had new evidence consisting of statements and affidavits from witnesses supporting Innslaw's previous claims. The most important of these witnesses was Michael Reconosciuto. Probably messed that up, but we're going with it. He swore in an affidavit for Innslaw that businessman Earl Bryan had provided him with a copy of Innslaw's Enhanced Promise software supporting Innslaw's earlier claims that Bryan had been interested in acquiring and marketing the software. A new allegation was also introduced in Rickonishito's affidavit, and in that, he swore that he added modifications to enhance Promise, quote, to support a plan for the implementation of Promise in law enforcement and intelligence agencies worldwide. According to Michael R., quote, Earl W. Bryan was spearheading the plan for this worldwide use of the Promise computer software, end quote. Now, another important witness was Ari ben Manache. Who also provided affidavits for Innslaw that Brian had bought, I'm sorry, brought both public domain and enhanced versions of Promise to Israel and eventually sold the enhanced versions to the Israeli government. Now, committee investigators interviewed Ari, and this interview takes place in May of 1991, and he told them that Brian sold the enhanced Promise to both Israeli intelligence and Singapore's armed forces and received several million dollars in payment, he also testified that Brian sold public domain versions to Iraq and Jordan. Here's the thing. This is where all the conspiracy starts. And basically, I'm going to sum it up for you because I know we've probably bored you to tears so far. But we're getting close.
0: We're getting close. I've cried twice.
1: (laughs) What's happened is they've withheld payment They've hijacked this public domain program. They've enhanced it on their own, which violates the contract they signed with Inslaw. Then they take that and they sell it to these foreign governments with a backdoor, which makes them able to see everything on that computer mainframe that Promise was installed on. And supposedly it allowed them to remotely turn on the computer's speaker and microphone so that they could record whatever they wanted to. And this is a whole nother arm of this conspiracy theory. And it's crazy. All right. So there's a new report and it's filed. And on the issue of Inslaw's rights in the, quote, enhanced promise, the House reports found that, quote, there appears to be strong evidence, in quote, supporting Judge Basin's finding that the Department of Justice acted willfully and fraudulently when it took converted and stole Inslaw's enhanced promise by trickery, fraud, and deceit. Like Judge Basin, the House report found that the Department of Justice did not negotiate with Inslaw in good faith, citing a statement by then-Deputy Attorney General Arnold Burns as, quote, one of the most damaging statements received by the committee, end quote. According to the report, Burns told the investigators that department attorneys informed him back in 1986. Now we're talking, this is 1992 that Enslaw's claim of proprietary rights was legitimate and that the DOJ would probably lose in court on that issue. House investigators also found it incredible that department of justice would pursue litigation after such a determination and concluded quote, this clearly raises the specter that the department actions Taken against Inslaw in this matter represent an abuse of power of shameful proportions. On the new allegations that Inslaw brought, the committee conducted extensive investigations, but the report did not make any factual findings on the new allegations. It did conclude that further investigation was warranted into the statements and claims of Inslaw's witnesses. So this kicks off in the early 80s. The DOJ says if we go to court in 1986, we're going to lose. In 1992, it hits the Senate and the House, and they the Senate, of course, finds no wrongdoing, but the House is the one that said that they in, took and stole the software by trickery, fraud, and deceit. So that is the Cliff Notes, and you're probably like, man, I'd hate to really read the whole thing. <laughs>
0: well, 30-year court case, I mean, there's going to be some info.
1: Yeah, just a tad. And if you want to even... Strap on your tenfold hat a little bit tighter. William Barr, yes, the same William Barr, investigated at towards the end of this 30-year case and found the government did any nothing. They didn't do anything wrong. All this was on the up and up. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health. I needed more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system and I despise taking vitamins. So I've been on it for about five weeks and it's pretty good. It doesn't taste like a super healthy green smoothie. It has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to. You know, it's it, it's very good. It's 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals, whole food source, foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. It helps start your day off right. And it's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy recovery, you name it. Now, I usually take it in the mornings and right after I have my coffee. And then I've noticed that my digestion has gotten more regulated. My energy levels are up. I would say the taste is more like a coconut, but some people say that it's more like a mango. But I've had my wife try it. She loves it. And I always make sure that I have it when I travel. It is lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still having a great taste. It supports better sleep quality and recovery, and it also supports mental clarity and alertness. It's the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens use the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. The price is going to cost you less than $3 a day. And it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. And you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes. And Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own. It is trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. And for every purchase, we donate to organizations helping to get nutritious foods to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. And in 2020, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now is the time to reclaim your health. And arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So now we get to Danny's involvement. I know you're like, damn, it's about freaking time, you sons of guns. All right, so Danny gets involved in, not, in early 1990, and he was looking for a new story to like rekindle his journalism career. And basically something that's going to make him some money, get his name out there as a legitimate journalist. So a friend of Danny's, Terry Miller, suggested that since Danny was real familiar with the computer trade arena and had that company that did the newsletters, that he should look into this new scandal that everyone was whispering about called the Inslaw case. So Danny reaches out to Mr. William Hamilton, the founder of Inslaw, and was instantly sucked down the rabbit hole. Because Mr. Hamilton explains to Danny that as a former member of the National Security Agency, he and his wife Nancy developed promise with funding from the Law Enforcement Something Association, the LEAA. And when the LEAA funding ran out after President Carter left office, Hamilton decided to convert Inns Law into a for-profit company. Hamilton had sent a letter to the DOJ requesting they waive any rights to enhanced versions of Promise, and on August 11, 1982, a Mm -hmm. lawyer responded verifying that Inslaw had the rights to any privately funded enhancements added to the public domain version of Promise. Now, as Hamilton explains his situation even further, Danny grows increasingly suspicious that, as Hamilton explains, Inslaw had been drawn into this web of conspiracy. Hamilton goes on to explain that the enhancements he had personally made to promise were not minor and would allow promise to run on just about any computer system the government possessed at the time. As the lawsuit that the Hamiltons had filed against the government drug on, Hamilton became aware of secret dealings that were transpiring behind the scenes at the Justice Department. So on St. Patrick's Day of 1987, the first of several whistleblowers stepped forward. And this first one is Anthony Pusciutto. He was the deputy director of the Justice Department's executive (laughs) office for the U.S. trustees. Anthony met with the Hamiltons and explained that he received pressure from Thomas Stanton, the director of his office, to get trustee officer William White and others to liquidate Inslaw. Poschuto also said that Cornelius Blackshear, the U.S. trustee in New York, knew what Stanton was doing and that he had talked about the pressure on Inslaw to U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Lawrence Pierce. Blackshear, under a deposition by Inslaw's lawyers, confirmed his statements to Poschuto, but the following day met with a representative of the Justice Department and recanted said statements in a sworn affidavit saying that Pasciuto had confused the Innslaw case with another computer company's case. Pasciutto also recants his other statements and magically two days after recanting his statements, the deputy director of the Justice Department's executive office for the U.S. Trustees is fired. Nothing to see here. He just, he's fired. So a Justice Department memo recommended his dismissal saying, quote, But for Mr. Poschuto's highly irresponsible actions, the department would be in a better litigation posture than it presently finds itself in, end quote. So basically, he let the cat out of the bag and they fired him. And then when he realized, oh, shit, I said too much, he tries to fish, but it's too late. He's just lucky they didn't kill his ass.
0: We'll be lucky. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we will. Now, Judge Basin, who was the bankruptcy judge, accepted Pasciutto's original testimony and made the observation that Cornelius Blackshear had also offered two different versions of the same event and that the first version was the most credible. So in 1987, Judge Basin rules in favor of Inslaw, finding that the government, and that's where the guilty of trickery, deceit, and fraud comes from. Now, Judge Basin went on to state that officials at the Justice Department had attempted to bankrupt Inslaw through an outrageous, deceitful, fraudulent game of cat and mouse, demonstrating contempt for both the law and any principle of fair dealing. After making his ruling... Judge Basin is notified that he will not be reappointed to the bench, becoming only one of four out of 136 federal bankruptcy judges to have been denied reappointment. Again, nothing to see here. Not surprising is that this decision came from Judge Patricia Wald, who just so happened to be a former member of... The Department of Justice. So in 1988, Pasciutto comes clean about the corruption in the Department of Justice, citing that invoices from Inslaw were designated to, quote, never be paid, end quote. So in August of 1989, the behavior of the Justice Department with regard to the Inslaw case had gained such infamy that the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jack Brooks of Texas, began an investigation with a letter to then Attorney General Richard Thornburg. So in December of 1989, Innslaw attorney Richardson submitted a writ of mandamus to the U.S. District court court in Washington, D.C., asking for the appointment of an independent investigator to look into the theft of promise by the Justice Department. Richardson stated that, quote, attempts to acquire control of promise were linked by conspiracy among friend of Attorney General Meese to take advantage of the relationship with him for the purpose of obtaining a lucrative contract for the automation of department's litigating divisions, end quote. This is exactly where the case stood the day that Hamilton verbally vomited into Danny's lap and sucked Danny down the rabbit hole. Did you just say suck Danny down? Uh, down the rabbit hole. I'm sure Bro. that if you want a sound bite, you can probably cut get that your out.
0: Mind out of <laughs> <it>. <laughs> All
1: right, so let's get into Mr. Michael Reconachito. Shortly after Hamilton was contacted by Riconosciuto, he, Mr. Hamilton, had told Castellaro about his new source. And by late 1990, according to Danny's friends, Danny spoke of nothing else except Michael Riconosciuto. He immediately set about investigating this new informant's background. What he learned only complicated an already complicated situation. Danny discovered that Riconosciuto had been a gifted child whose science projects, including the construction of an argon laser, he's making lasers as a child, had, ama- had enabled him to work as a research assistant to Dr. Arthur Shallow, the Nobel Laureate. I guess he's kind of famous if you're a Nobel Laureate. Now, other things in those past had a shadier aspect. After leaving Stanford University, Reconosciuto migrated to Hot Ashbury in San Francisco, where he went to work for an underground newspaper. Now Reconosciuto tells Danny that he had acquired some photos that the newspaper had published, which showed narcotics agents having sex with underage girls. And because of this, the NARC had framed Reconosciuto on drug charges. In nineteen seventy three, Reconosciuto goes to prison for two years for manufacturing LSD. Danny didn't buy any of this and was like telling his friends that there's no way this dude's innocent of these drug charges. He also noted in his own notes, quote, Mike sold dope through Phyllis, end quote. Nobody to this day knows who Phyllis is. Now, Danny goes back and tells Bill Hamilton that he didn't totally buy into this Shuto's wild stories, but there may be some bits of truth sprinkled in there. Nonetheless, Rick and Ashuto provided Danny with some leads to follow. So Danny runs the leads down, phoning person after person around the country, basically getting his name out there that he's looking to investigate this Inslaw thing. And a complicated case of computer thievery turned into something closer to a Jason Bourne novel. Danny started to spend a lot of his professional life on the telephone. Each of Rick shoot those leads seemed to connect to another lead, and Danny began to sense that he was on the trail of a conspiracy story for the century. So while he doesn't necessarily believe everything coming out of this old boy's mouth, he has a just enough he's connected just enough dots that he's thinking he's onto something that could really Make his name a household name. So by the beginning of 1991, Danny was heavily involved with the Innslaw case. One contact supplied by Reconosciuto was a man named Alan Standorf, who worked at the secret military electronic listening post at Vent Hill Farm near Manassas, Virginia. Stendorf supplied Danny with classified information and in order to quickly return the materials to avoid detection, Danny set up a high-speed commercial duplicating and collating equipment in room 900 at a nearby Hilton Hotel. Danny may not have known what he was getting into when he began to investigate Promise and the conspiracy arms that ran from it. So on January 31st, 1991, Alan Standorf's body is found on the back floor of his car at the Washington National Airport. Standorf had been murdered by a blow to the back of his head. Danny pulled the various threads he had uncovered together into a book proposal for submission to publishers entitled, Behold a Pale Horse. What he didn't realize at the time was that he was describing a part of an interlinking cabal he would later call the Octopus, which
0: is a pretty awesome name. You know. Surprise,
1: motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is a it's an awesome name to be honest with you because it really does it kind of details exactly what he's he's found. He thought he was just investigating this one case, and then he starts cherry-picking what this drug dealer of the century, Reconisciuto, says, and he finds some some little nuggets of truth, and then as he connects those, they start leading to more and more true things that he can actually verify. So the octopus is what this whole case of Danny's turned into. He started off looking at the Inns Law, but then he shifts his focus to this hidden agenda is and this word has been used a lot here lately but at the time it hadn't he really is talking about this shadow government or cabal that's pulling the strings on a lot of things now he sought to document and expose this sea of covert operatives super surveillance software and transnational spies The Octopus consisted of a group of U.S. intelligence veterans that had banded together to manipulate world events for the sake of consolidating and extending its own power. Of course, anything that we need to talk about with conspiracy theories either starts or goes through Dallas and the Kennedy assassination. But that was just one of many coups and assassinations pulled off by the octopus, according to Danny, since the end of World War II. The group had come together over a covert operation to invade Albania that was betrayed by famed British turncoat Kim Philby. The octopus had overthrown Jacob Arbenez in Guatemala in 1954. It had targeted operations against Castro culminating in the Bay of Pigs. It also had tentacles into the political upheavals in Angola, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Nigeria, Chile, Iran and Iraq. Danny had as in his
0: Iran, <laughs> I'm so far away.
1: Danny had as his main concern of the Octopus involvement was the infamous October surprise, which put Ronald Reagan in power and the role that played introducing the promised soft, not promised, but promise software into police systems around the world. Now Danny's catalog of membership in the Octopus included some pretty notorious CIA secret squirrels one John Singulob and the late CIA director William Colby as heads of the phoenix assassination program in Vietnam they had implemented an earlier version of the promise tracking software to keep tabs on the Viet Cong other octopus tentacles included characters like E. Howard Hunt and Bernard Baker who later emerged as the Watergate burglars Danny focused on one person in the periphery of the octopus as it had developed in the early 1980s, and this was a man named Earl Bryan. And Earl Bryan was a crony to then Attorney General Ed Meese. Bryan had been given promise to sell illegally as a reward for paying off the Ayatollah Khomeini to hold on to American hostages until the Carter presidential reelection campaign clearly was doomed. This is the October surprise. According to Casolaro, Meese used the U.S. Justice Department to steal Promise from Inslaw, which had its connections to the Phoenix program and also had developed the software at least in part on public money. Two congressional committees eventually agreed, however, that the Inslaw was the legal private owner of Promise and when the U.S. Department of Justice shanghaied it, And Earl Bryan profiteered by selling it to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Interpol, Mossad, and other international police agencies, as well as international military. And another application of the Modified Promise software included the ability to track then-Soviet submarines in previously untraceable marine trenches near Iceland. Now, sidebar, this is the whole conspiracy theory, which part of it's not really a conspiracy theory. This is where, what's the guy's name that found the Titanic? It's not James Cameron, but the other guy.
0: There is James Cameron.
1: Was it? I thought there was someone yeah. else. Anyway, they basically the government tells him, hey, we'll fund you looking for it, but you need to find these cables, and they start putting these listening devices on these undersea cables, and that's where this ties back into... The trenches and where they track these Soviet submarines. So this this thing's crazy. Like if you can dream up of something that shady that went down from about 1945 to about 1990, this octopus, according to Danny and some of his contacts, has their tentacles in it. So if coded correctly, Promise could interface with other databases without reprogramming, which meant it would give Promise a greater ability to track criminals but also track political dissidents through the computer systems of various police agencies. Danny's main informant, oh, Mr. Michael Riconoschuto, added to this claim that he had personally reprogrammed promise with a backdoor so it could spy on the methods of the police agencies that were using it for tracking. This gave it added appeal as a covert tool. The U.S. could spy on the very agencies it was selling the software to illegally. Now, the facts that Danny investigated sounded him, but the rumors were out of this world, some of them literally. And this one, I know you are uh, kind of punch drunk at this time, but one thing that he found was this project called Yellow Lodge. And allegedly... This project produced advanced warfare projects, including parthenogenic viruses co-engineered with Stormont Labs in Woodland, California. Stormont Labs later acknowledged that it had discussions concerning biological weapons. Yellow Lodge ran operations on the Hicarilla Apache lands and other Indian reservations, including a center they called D6 located none other than Dulce, New Mexico. Oh, snap. Yeah, and then in Danny's own notes, he scribbles MJ-12 extraterrestrial and he mentions Area 51 and Pine Gap. Now, Pine Gap suggests that Danny knew of the Chrisman connection or of the significance it might hold for what he already knew about Area 51. Pine Gap, and it's Basically, an American base in Australia with just as much secrecy around it as Area 51. And it's located near Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. And officially, it's known as the Joint Defense Space Research Facility. It was built in 1968 officially to share program data with the Australians. Renowned intelligence defector Victor Marchetti, who served as a CIA director from 66 to 69 acknowledges that he co-authored the secret agreement between the agency and the Australian Department of Defense on the establishment of the Pine Gap station. Officially, it monitors spy satellites and intercepts and decodes broadcast communications between foreign powers unfriendly to the U.S. And one of Pine Gap's important functions is, is to monitor geostationary satellites for wide ranging information on enemy telemetry, radar missions, and telecommunications. Opposition from the Australians to the base grew as its nature as an espionage facility outside of Australian control started to come into focus. In nineteen eighty seven, the book Crimes of Patriots author Jonathan Quitney demonstrates that covert manipulation led to the early end in Australia of the administration of Labor Party Prime Minister Go Whitlam because of his opposition to the Pine Gap facility. Danny noted with aggravation, Quintney's inability to see that the octopus had its tentacles in his undoing. Quote, It didn't take many people to design the apparatus that would ensure the renewal of the lease for Pine Gap, near Alice Springs, end quote. He goes on to state, after all, how could a democracy spit up a prime minister that could sack the security of Western alliance? Now, what is fact is this old boy from Australia did lose his seat basically from public complaints about intelligence agency deceptions over tragic U.S. policies in East Timor and the CIA's funding of Australia's right-wing country party, as well as opposition to Pine Gap. Whitlam was not driven from office by an election, but was removed on a technicality by a governor general he had appointed, one who just happened to have strong ties to the CIA. So... No doubt the paranoia about his destabilization of the Australian government by the U.S. fueled rumors about the underground Pine Gap base involving, quote, alien government collaborations, rumors that Danny knew about that were very similar to what he was hearing about Area 51. Now, certainly the base's potential for surveillance also triggered his interest as well. Promise had been used in tracking Soviet submarines, and it might also be used to track Soviet satellites. One report told of a Moscow summit in 1972, during which an early Pine Gap satellite picked up limousine radio telephone conversations between Soviet missile designers that revealed a missile secretly being kept from the negotiations at the time. What Danny had come to see was a collusion of international crime and political power, focused around a handful of men, primarily CIA operatives, who all had banded together after World War II. Following the associations that Danny made, starting with the OSS in Albania, the trail of murder and conspiracy led from this tight net of good old boys in the U.S. intelligence to a complex weave of major international crime and power brokers, to Nazis and fascists at least sometimes wearing the uniform of the U.S. military, to drug trafficking networks melding seamlessly into international banking, to private armies and death squads, to, so- melding? Melding, to secret societies such as the Skull and Bones and P2, to men busily engaged in looting banking institutions and national treasuries, and to the presidents and potentates of the world. Basically, these men reaped, and are still reaping, staggering profits while at the same time constructing world criminal and fascist networks, and all in the name of anti-communism. What Danny planned to expose was an octopus, and certainly no figment of his imagination. So, he started tying together all of these tentacles of the octopus, and then he starts seeing several mysterious deaths that would start occurring enough that they make you go, Hmm, there might be some here. The first one was Dennis Eisman, who was an attorney from Philadelphia, who was in touch with Danny and was scheduled to travel to Washington to defend Michael Riconosciuto, planning also to meet with a woman who had evidence of threat to Michael's life. In April, Iceman was shot and killed in his car in Philadelphia. According to one source, just prior to his death, indictments were pending against him and other attorneys for, quote, narcotics trafficking and money laundering. But those indictments never materialized.
0: You definitely don't want to be indicted. No.
1: On June 19th, 1991, former Nixon campaign aide, Alan Michael May died in his home in San Francisco. During the interview, Reconosciuto had talked about May's involvement in the October surprise. The initial coroner's report attributed May's death to a heart attack, but an autopsy showed the presence of polypharmaceuticals in his body, and I did not even attempt to look up polypharmaceuticals because I don't want to know. Anson Ng, a reporter for the Financial Times of London, pursued Jimmy Hughes, who was a security guard with ties to the octopus. Now, he was a security guard at a research facility in California called a Hut. He pursues, said Jimmy, to South America in an attempt to get an interview from him. While Anson is in Guatemala during 1991, he's murdered by a single bullet to the chest. His death was ruled a suicide. The Guatemalan government was asked to retrieve Anson's floppy disk and personal papers regarding his investigations it did so and turned them over to the u.s intelligence agencies in a press conference a few weeks later 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 senator alan cranston requested that these items be returned but they somehow were misplaced funny how that happens
0: uh, ain't that just a look
1: So, more than a year earlier, on March 31st, 1990, a British journalist named Jonathan Moyle was found dead, hung in a hotel room closet in Santiago, Chile. Quote, although Danny and Moyle were probably probing different leads, their investigations involved some of the same people, end quote, said columnist Jack Anderson. Moyle was an editor at London's Defense Helicopter World and had been investigating the weapons trade specifically the alleged sale of non-military U.S. helicopters to Iraq for refitting as attack choppers. The notes Moyle left behind contain reference to a sophisticated missile guidance system that held Iraqi interest. Whether or not it was used in the disastrous skid attacks during the Persian Gulf War, the first one, is not known. Instrumental in the arms dealing Moyle had investigated was Carlos Cardoan. The same man, Ari Ben-Manashi, identified as the intermediary between Iraq and Earl Bryan for the Promise Software deal. Initial reports called Moyle's death a suicide, but evidence, including the presence of a strong sedative in his system and possible asphyxiation, suggested otherwise. Now, in February of 1987, Larry Guerin, a private investigator conducting Innslaw connected work for Reconishuto, was killed in Mason County, Washington State. After Iceman's death in April of 1993, another attorney who worked with Reconishuto, John Crawford, died suddenly from a heart attack in Tacoma, Washington. The decomposed body of a third Reconishuto lawyer, Paul Wilshire was found in Wilshire's Washington, D.C. apartment on June 23rd of 1993. Wilshire also had been an attorney for the pilot Gunther Rosbogger, who claimed to have videotape proof and 16 witnesses to his having flown George H.W. Bush to one of the October surprise meetings. Wilshire belonged to the American Patriot Facts Network and had recently prepared a fifty-five-page fax summarizing information on circumstances leading to the deaths of David Koresh and his followers in 1993 that he sent as a challenge to Attorney General Janet Reno. The facts included details of the story of his client Russ Bakker concerning the October surprise and a page of information on the Inslaw case, pointing out that an executive assistant to then Senator Robert Byrd, a Democrat from West Virginia, was the wife of Peter Venenekis, who had threatened Reconosciuto. The mysterious death list came also to include the execution-style slaying of Ian Spiro and his family, his wife, three daughters, in San Diego on November 1, 1992. Spiro reportedly worked for U.S. and British intelligence agencies on operations that included the October Surprise, Iran-Contra, and hostage crisis in Lebanon. Spiro spoke with Reconisciuto, for whom he was helping collect documents to present to a grand jury only a few days before his death. All right, so here's the deal. If you are in the law business and you talk to this Reconisciuto guy in the late 80s, early 90s, you wind up dead. That's four or five. I've lost count. He lost three attorneys that were representing him and then two people that were helping him. That also were lawyers, but not on the payroll. This boy's like poison. Poison.
0: <laughs> it's driving me out of my mind. That girl <laughs> is on me to find.
1: <laughs> Sorry. That's uh, all right. Valley Delante, whose knowledge of a DEA plan to set up Reconosciutto on drug charges, would have made her an important witness for Reconosciutto. And guess what? She just happens to disappear August 18th, 1992, but her body was never discovered until the next April in a ravine in Lake Bay, Washington. Another Reconosciutto ally, Pete Sandvigan, who was working to help Reckonishuto defend himself from the drug charges, died the following December, and an ammo magazine from the gun he carried mysteriously went missing. Huh. Then we get to Barry Kusnick, a computer engineer who had worked on Promise Enhancements, also found himself suicided. And according to one report, Old Barry's enhancements was called Brainstorm, an artificially intelligence program that applied the prognosticating ability of promise to individual thought patterns. It ostensibly allowed promise to deduce from personality characteristics the potential action of the person being traced. As in the Enslaw case, Kusnick, Old Barry, apparently had made the modifications under a government contract that the government failed to pay. the government failed to pay a bill. That's amazing.
0: That is amazing.
1: And guess what? By failing to pay this bill, they are attempting to drive poor Barry into bankruptcy. I think we've seen this this scheme before. Barry had previously done communications and intelligence work for Northrop Corporation and the U.S. military. His body had not been found, and nine months after he was reported missing, family members were unable to get known business partners to even acknowledge knowing him. Five boxes of his belongings were found in a lockup facility. Yeah, if one of the guys in my firm is suicided and someone says don't ever talk about him, guess what I'm doing? I'm not talking about Barry. Nope. I don't even know Barry. I don't even know English. (laughs) <laughs> Miss speaking English. Now we get to Sherman Skolnick, longtime chairman of Chicago Citizens Committee to clean up the courts, charged that nearly 40 witnesses in the Innslaw case had been murdered and complained that a federal judge appointed to review the case failed to show concern over the safety of other witnesses. He also claimed that a special federal grand jury in Chicago planned to do an in-run around the judge and issue high-level indictments. The most mysterious death connected to this whole octopus and innslaw thing was the former political activist Abby Hoffman. Hoffman wrote an early piece on the October surprise for Playboy magazine and shortly thereafter was involved in a suspicious automobile accident. Most regarded his death on April 12, 1989 as a the suicide it was reported as caused perhaps in due to depression that he that old abby suffered from the continued pain resulting making him suicide himself in a car others however suspected foul play in abby's death notably his friend david dellinger a former member of the chicago eight hold please i have a critter trying to eat my face off killed it we're good <laughs> Dellinger's suspicions even led him to attempt to retrieve the coroner's report for examination, but he was stopped by a threatened court battle. They basically would not allow that to go to court, Dellinger concluded, but Abby's son, Andrew, and Abby's first wife, Sheila, are convinced that he was killed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's a lot to digest.
0: Yeah, I'm still lost. I'm lost in the sauce, man.
1: And that's the problem with this whole case. This is where I was when I texted you Saturday and it's like, man, I don't, I don't know where I, we can, I can even get to an ending where we could even record because it just keeps going. Yeah. And so ladies and gentlemen, we could rock this thing on, but you would be cussing us because by the time you tried to end this, your brain would explode. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut this bad boy up into two parts because we are an hour into this and we just barely have Danny dipping his toe into this conspiracy of the octopus and how far the tentacles reach and this old boy named Reconishuto here's one thing that I've learned so far if you knew that Reconishuto guy back then you better not say it out loud because everybody that seems to know him winds up dead maybe he's a serial killer or maybe he's a secret agent, man. I don't know, man. This this thing is like... I know why they call it the the octopus, and they probably should have called it the spider, because this thing just keeps going. But I put out on Patreon a little message basically saying, you know, hey, bear with us, we... We're eyeball deep in a rabbit hole. We got a lot of positive feedback from y'all from the Bruise Crew on Patreon, and we really appreciate the fact that you're understanding when we do this kind of stuff and we get drowned in the information. But hopefully, you regular folk out there in podcast land enjoyed our previously Patreon only on the Tokushima disappearance, and hopefully, you enjoy this first part to the Danny Casalero and Octopus case we probably should name this Danny Casalero Inslaw 1 and then next week we'll do Danny Casalero Octopus 2 the return the return of the crocken but uh you got uh any recommendations there besides Tylenol and a stiff drink
0: yeah i'd like both of those right now well we got a suggestion today for so i'm going to recommend it about the Paris and Gimlin film.
1: Uh-oh. What, what What are they saying?
0: Astonishing Legends episodes on the Paris and Gimlin film. Astonishing Brother,
1: Legends. I got to write this down. Astonishing <laughs> Legends. Okay. Six parts. Holy God.
0: Part one, two hours. Part two, an hour and 53 minutes. Part three, an hour and 50 minutes. Part four, three hours and 40 minutes. Part five, two hours, and part six, two, two hours and 15 minutes.
1: Dang. How far into it are you?
0: I haven't started it yet because it was suggested by, let me give her credit, Emily
1: <laughs>
0: Nora Visas, and I probably butchered the hell out of that. And if I did, I apologize.
1: Well, it's been a minute, but Richard Hartline out in Arkansas has uh. Reached out and he has recommended if you have HBO on demand or if you have HBO, this um, documentary series called The Invisible Pilot, and you guessed it, it's about a crop duster from Arkansas who fakes his own death, and runs marijuana from Alaska, and then runs cocaine into Miami. -mm. And that's all in episode one. And there's five episodes. Like I turned episode episode one off. It's like an hour and five minutes. And I'm like, where do you go from here? The whole thing leading up is they're interviewing this old boy's kids, and they're crying, and daddy's dead, and da 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 da. And this man walks in and sits down in the chair in a suit and tie. So he's not only not dead, he's not in jail. (laughs) <laughs> wow yeah and i'm like episode one really this is how we're gonna do it yeah it's it's a wild one and thank you richard for uh recommending that he also sent us another recommendation but i will hold on to that till next week but yeah man these... oh,
0: no man go ahead and tell it
1: you want to yeah he says that we should uh watch the uh john Edmonds podcast i believe yeah John Edmonds and the Alien Slayer, Stardust Ranch. And it's on the Confessionals podcast. I'm sorry. The Confessionals podcast, episode 43, Stardust Ranch with John Edmonds and the Alien Slayer. He says that it is worth a listen. I think Stardust Ranch is where that old boy tries to kill them aliens with a sword, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Ah, okay. So you know. Probably why it's called the Alien Slayer. Yeah.
1: Tom fuckery probably ensues. Probably get some like real good scratch your head stuff with the HBO series, and then you tune into that podcast and probably laugh your tail off, which I like that. I like a little serious with my my comedy, but anyway, Coach, you got anything else? I know that everybody's out there like, man, y'all just left us hanging on a ledge, but we this is really the only spot that we could probably stop, and it makes sense because you would like you would probably unsubscribe, and we we don't want that.
0: No, we definitely don't want that
1: but thank you i know that um again like coach said at the beginning you know your contributions through patreon are tremendously appreciated we know how tight things are in our own households and the fact that you can let go of a little bit of money each month we really it really does mean a huge difference we are as you can tell from some of the last episodes we are working with a new board we got a soundboard we've got some some new things and like coach said in the Chuck Morgan case, all of your money goes to improving this podcast through equipment. And without y'all, we couldn't be doing this. And again, you know, to echo what Coach said, we're just two dumbasses in a basement that scratch our heads every week and think, Man, we're getting to do this again. But uh, you know, you got anything there, Slappy? Oh man, you know I don't. Well then uh deuces